0: Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Failure Piece Theater, your podcast for discussions of the cinematic misfires of Hollywood history, the near misses, the almost could have beens, because if you can't be a masterpiece, you might as well be a failure piece. And this week, we talk about the Dowdle Brothers, As Above, So Below, also known as the Catacombs movie. I'm your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is...
1: Catherine.
0: And we're going to talk about some found footage, you guys. Mm -hmm. We're going to dive deep into found footage. We've mentioned it before. Uh, It's hard to do a podcast about uh, failures and genre films without talking about um, found footage at some point. Um, I guess we could. I I was listening to a a podcast not too long ago, and they were trying to determine whether or not found footage was a genre or a format, Mm. uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I thought I might pose that to you. Um, so what do you think? Can we think of found footage as a genre of film now? Or should it simply be relegated to a format, a type of film? What do you think?
1: I think because it contains tropes that are unique to found footage format movies, that it can be a genre. Um, there are things that I expect to see in found footage movies now, Um you know, I, I walk into most of them, hoping for some of the, um. Kind of maybe silly things, you know, things that have now become you know a bit cliche, um, like yeah. the the Blair Witch addressing the camera seriously scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we all make fun of that, but that is a, a pretty important part of the narrative, because um, that's how you you get closer to those those performances, I guess. So I feel mm-hmm. like it is a genre. I feel like it, it can stand up on its own, and we certainly have enough of these movies now because everybody's, I mean, we, we were just saying before this that, you know, why don't we all make a found footage movie with our iPhones? Mm-hmm.
0: It's uh, I, I'm kind of of the, the same mind. At, at one point, in, uh, you know, before the sort of continued development of found footage as, as a genre, because I, I do think it falls into that, that category now, I, I would have said, yeah, it's just a technique. Right. You're, just throw, you're just using this technique to tell a story. But what we've really discovered is that this technique finds its best expression in telling certain types of stories. Um, and, and sharing those kinds of stories through this method generally is going to work better than, than some others. And honestly, I think the best examples of this genre are the ones that understand the types of stories that work best in this format. Um, you know, Cloverfield, eh, not so much, right? Like, I don't think that that necess- that story works as well. I don't think anybody like else did either. The Blair Witch Project. I mean, it did. I, I know it made a lot of money, but it's it's much harder to convince me that this is really, truly footage filmed by a human being in the midst of this crisis when you know. TJ Miller is turning around mm. as he's sprinting down the street. TJ Miller that monster strikes again. Just T. Keeps T. Miller always movies. strikes again. He's always waiting in the wings just to come in. And With his kill bong. Movie. <laughs> that's right. His bong and his little ducky. Um, that's an underwater reference. Uh, no, it was a bunny in, little, in underwater. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. His little bunny friend. Does it really Anyways.
1: matter? <laughs> it was something fucking so, weird.
0: <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines. So this week, uh, we are talking about as above, so below the 2014 found footage, horror film, very famously, very notably actually filmed at least major chunks of it. I, there are, there is a little bit of set and studio work in this just by the nature of things they had to do, but the vast majority was filmed for reels in the Paris catacombs, um, and uh, so this film is notable for for that and that alone. Uh, it was also directed by the Dowdle brothers. Um, well, directed and written. Uh, John Eric Dowdle uh, did the, the directing, but his brother helped to write the script and they, they came up with the concept uh, along with their others. Very notably, this was actually put out by if I remember correctly, this was put out by Legendary Pictures. So it was mm-hmm. a fairly large release. Right. This was not necessarily a, a typical found footage film that's just sort of dumped unceremoniously into theaters because they don't know what to do with it, which is where most of them, unfortunately, fall. This one had some backing. Uh, it was still shot very inexpensively. Um, a little bit under $5 million was its total budget. And you can tell, like this is a, a film that really manages its scale very, very well. And it ended up making about $40 million. So by all horror benchmarks it was a success living the dream uh, uh you know we haven't gotten a dozen you know we haven't gotten a dozen of them uh which i'm happy about uh, i'm very glad that this is not a film that we've gotten you know 37 sequels to
1: paris catacomb adventure number five we
0: We're going back <laughs> because they they could have gone that route yeah you know, if they really really wanted to and so i'm um, I'm very glad that uh, we've been able to avoid that that trope, um, but it is most definitely, in my opinion, one of the better examples of this recent genre. Right. So I, I guess let's take a walk. Let's take a walk through found footage. Right. So I am well aware of the fact that Blair Witch is not the first found footage movie. Mm. Right. We we go back to to other. Experimental film sp- films and horror films from the 70s and 80s. Uh, Cannibal, Cannibal Holocaust. Holocaust being the most notable. And so, yes, I'm well aware that it is not the first and that uh, the directors of Blair Witch were, were influenced and, and pulling from from things that they had seen in horror.
1: But honestly, well, if you're such a film buff that you saw Cannibal Hol- Holocaust before you saw the Blair Witch Project, why are you listening to this podcast? Go make <laughs> your own film are.
0: podcast. <laughs> Let's be honest. They are. not um, are. But the simple fact is, in in my opinion, the Blair Witch is the one that made this, that sparked the flame that grew into what this, you know, we're now calling a genre of film. Because it clearly um, was.
1: I mean, and it was great. Like, I still mm-hmm. love the Blair Witch Project. What a great movie.
0: Absolutely. Um, I did not see it in theaters. I, I was well aware of the hype. Uh, you know, Blair Witch is yet another one of those the insane year I dragged our parents to the theater
1: to see it (laughs) you had already gotten married but I was like you're taking me to see this movie I
0: I was married and in college at this time and um you know and and I was watching tons of movies but they were almost exclusively on home video I was not seeing a lot of stuff in the theaters uh, I do not have enough money to see movies in the theaters at this point, uh, very honestly. But The Blair Witch was released in in the year of insane movie releases that was 1999, you know. So Matrix, um, you know, the, the, just dozens of films in 19, you know there've been entire podcasts devoted to just breaking down the films released in 1999 and, and justly so. Um, so Blair Witch came out on video; it was huge. Everybody was trying to rent a copy of it. Um, I think I ended up buying a copy on VHS to even watch it. We hadn't even seen it yet, but I was, but it was the only way to get it. It was sold out in, in rental stores, uh, which was my kind of major pipeline into to watching movies at the time. And so I remember it was summer um, or early summer. We had, a, we were living in a tiny ass apartment above a lovely old lady for very little money because, you know, again, didn't have any money. And uh, all the windows were open, including the, uh, the door that led out onto our sort of like upstairs patio. And it was hot. We had fans going and, and we watched it. And I remember that film finishing and just, aside from a legitimate sense of terror, I mean, if you've seen The Blair Witch, you know the ending of that film and how sure. it builds and, and then sort of comes to a, a, a very sudden stop you know, I was sort of, I sort of sat in stunned silence. And so, you know, I was not one of those people to be like, was that real? Was the Blair Witch real? You know, I wasn't yeah. one of those people. Yeah. But in, in the moment in that film, because of the way that it was presented, I had that fleeting thought, what if something like that could really happen? You know, and that to me is one of the, the great things that a film can do to transport you so fully mm-hmm. into a world that is so obviously fictional, that you believe that it could happen or that it, it was happening somewhere is, is so good and it reminded me of a, a lot of the same feelings that I felt you know reading novels as a kid and sort of becoming so enmeshed in those universes and, that I felt like I was a part of them and and Blair Witch grabbed that and that's and, and, the, and that's no footage, accident you know it helped
1: and that that's no, no that's no, no it accident it was very very carefully you know crafted with you know, the urban legends and the sort of very real texture that 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 gave to it, and that the found footage format gave to it. Um, that it's absolutely engineered beautifully. That everybody feels that way at the end of the movie. That everybody sort of thinks, "What really is out in the woods?" <laughs> you know, it made everybody terrified of camping for at least five years.
0: And as somebody who grew up, at least a, a good chunk of my childhood was in a heavily rural area that was surrounded uh-huh. on all sides by woods um i had spent a lot of time out in woods that looked very much like those woods and you know there there was a lot of a lot of my childhood and and other experiences that i'd had sort of tied to a lot of what those kids were seeing while they were running around out in the woods with you know bad camera work so you know blair witch kicked it off uh, obviously it was followed up by the the very interesting, it, it, at the time I was horrendously disappointed by Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, but <laughs> it tried to push in a very different direction and it does some interesting things on its own. It's it, it's certainly something that we'll probably talk about on this because it was so hyped and everybody was so ready for it and then it went in such a different direction <laughs> than uh, the original. But I, I'm kind of glad because it, it sort of killed sequels to the Blair Witch uh, for a while. Obviously we've gotten some in recent memory, but... That film was remarkable and then the the genre sort of it stayed alive in the background. There were people who were trying to do similar things. It was just too big for people to not attempt to emulate it. But I, I don't think most of the people were willing to go to the lengths that the the filmmakers of Blair Witch did to get that footage, which is basically to just put three people out in the woods, leave them alone for two weeks, send them vague directions about what to do, and then kind of let them make the movie on their own. And And that's really what happened.
1: I don't think anybody was really up for the challenge of creating the ARG that went along with it either, because that's what tends to not survive in public consciousness. You know, everybody remembers the movie itself, but there was months of the television special, about the documentary about the missing kids Um, missing filmmaking crew. There was all of this stuff in the media that was making it sound like it was real. They had the actors, you know, not appearing publicly so that people could speculate on whether this really happened. And that's a lot of work. Um, Mm -hmm. Very intimidating to take on something like that and actually pull it off and not just be dismissed as derivative, I guess.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, As as a film, you know, they pushed in just the right directions and very carefully constructed this thing, and then we're fortunate enough that the studio that ended up buying it from them after it it showed a few times um, understood that the way to sell this to the American people was mm-hmm. to market it as truth, right? Because I remember going to the website. Um, as I said, I was in college at the time. And I remember going to, you know, a couple of our open computer labs and, uh, you know, using the the then incredible, you know, broadwe- broadband internet to uh, load up uh, both the the Matrix's marketing site, which was also impressive and built entirely in Flash, and uh, the, the Blair Witch stuff, which that website was presented as a, you know, have you seen these kids mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know. Kind of website where it's like, you know, have you seen these people? Do you know anything about them? Here's the footage that we found from their cameras, you know, all these different things. And it was, it was genius, right? It was one of those just perfect, couldn't have been done better sort of moments.
1: I was one of the early, like, urban legends on the internet people. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it used to be forums and Snopes and things that now turn into those dumb, creepy pastas. Something awful, man. Yeah, like those are, that's the place... Those are the places where I, I sort of hung out. So it, this was engineered for success. It was just perfect. And and then there was nothing worth watching for a very, very long time in found yeah. footage.
0: <laughs> yeah, the genre basically died for about five years as a bunch of people tried to figure out what to do. Um, and, and basically Hollywood couldn't right cuz blair you know book of shadows blair witch 2 is what hollywood tried to do and just whiffed it right just straight up lucy pulling the ball out from charlie brown and charlie brown goes flying yeah. that was blair witch 2 for hollywood and found footage and and it just sort of died on the vine nobody even really attempted anything or if they did it, it didn't get any traction
1: until
0: until 2007 that's right, and we get another completely gorilla, absolutely done on a shoestring budget. Paranormal Activity. So some uh, golden Pella. shit, you guys. Oren, uh, Oren Pella's Paranormal Activity. I I did not love. Um, I I still I guess I still kind of had Blair Witch in mind, and I think the, I think the setting of the woods. Is a far more naturally intimidating place than the setting of the home, the McMansion, think, the scary yes, the, McMansion, the scary McMansion, uh, which has now become a de facto scary location. Um, now, not to say that the Pella didn't do what he, what I think the best found footage filmmakers do, which is work with what you have. You work with what you have. You you make the most of the space that you're given, and then you sell it. And that's what he did. And I yeah. and pushed in some very interesting directions that were tied intimately to how personal camera technology had advanced, right? You know, SD cards versus, you know, micro DV. So you could film all night long and, and have these things. You know, he, like, he, he expanded the genre in ways because found footage much like many genres, you know, like animation and other things is tied to the technology of the day that it releases. And you can't necessarily sell it unless you make the you know what you're using believable, which is why Blair Witch, again, was very carefully done. They had thought through well, what would a film crew made up of college students going out of the woods have? Well, they'd have one nice camera, they'd have one okay camera, and then they'd have a shit camera. Right. And so we're going to have all three of those running and then we're just going to intercut between them. And it's going to feel more like stitched together footage from different places because mm-hmm. each camera has its own kind of look and feel. Pellay goes the other direction and says, well, if you're a real person living at home, you're not going to you're not going to buy multiple cameras. You're going to use one really good camera that you can afford. And he even built that into the storyline. Oh, this is the camera that he went out and spent money he shouldn't have spent to buy. And so he's lugging this thing around their house and setting it up on a tripod, which makes the camera work very simple because he doesn't have to worry about handheld. And it it was just clever. And it was architected well enough and simply enough that he could tell a very straightforward story with just enough scares to get the job done. And, and that's what he does. Um, so Paranormal Activity for me was a bit of a letdown. I, I wanted more. I certainly appreciate the... I
1: feel like it's trash, but it's my kind it of trash. <laughs> exactly.
0: I mean in Blair I mean Blair Witch I think is a step above for sure, but it too is is trash. It's horror movies it's sort of revel stuff. in
1: their trashiness, and that's what I'll always right. love about them.
0: Yes, and found footage seems to be capable of reveling in it a little bit more than some of the other genres of horror these days. They they're they're willing to lean into the cheapness because horror like comedy requires some very specific things to be effective, right? You need shock, you need surprise, you need dread, you need tension. And all of these things, even though really good horror movies make it seem like it's simple, like it's a simple formula to execute, it absolutely isn't. And there's and there are so many bad examples of, of horror movies out there that it's easy to see the people who are truly good at executing and these these principles and those who are not. And Peli, that's what he did. Uh, now, what I would suggest, if you do, if you sort of dug Paranormal Activity and, and the sort of vision of that, I would say forget about the Paranormal Activity movies, especially the after the first two at most. Um, although I do like five. The marked ones is okay, but that's because it's kind of a reboot for the series and goes in a totally different direction. But it just gets so up. That series gets so far up its own butt with mythology that it just becomes annoying. But five is a really good execution on the found footage, you know, standard. And it gets away from the the like suburban Karen drama stuff of the second, third, and fourth ones. But Pelleye's greatest achievement of found footage horror is a one season long television show for ABC produced by Steven Spielberg called The River. Um it is fantastic. It is Brilliantly done. It's scary as hell, which is why I think it failed. I think it was legitimately too frightening for for network television. Um, the premise: Have you ever seen this? I don't even know if you've talked. N- I've this never show. seen it. No, you've never seen this. Okay, um, I love it. I I think it's fantastic. And the premise is is mm, Chef's kiss. Um, so the the story is this: six months ago a world-renowned naturalist, let's call him a cross between Jacques Cousteau and Marty Stauffer, named Emmett Cole, disappears. Right, He's out in the Amazon jungle, following a lead, looking for something, whatever, He disappears. Six months later, his estranged family get together to admit that he's gone, that he's dead, and move on. His estranged son, who used to travel with him, and and, you know, see the world with him, but had fallen out of his favor and they'd sort of split split ways. He's brought into it. His mom pulls him aside and says, your father's GPS locator beacon just turned back on. We're going to go down there and see if we can find him uh, or at least find what's left of him. And she's like, we're going to film it. We're going to turn it into a TV expedition. That's the only way we can get the studio to pay for it uh, for the expedition to go find him. Can you come with us and and be a part of it? And so they go down to the Amazon to hunt through this untamed wilderness to try and find this guy. And McCole is played by Bruce Greenwood, which, of course, it is. Oh, have fun. And he's I awesome. I know. Um, it's uh, It's got, oh, gosh, who is the, uh, There's they bring, like, a German security guy with them. And it's, oh, what is his name? I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, let, let me search for it uh, you, like, again you, you'll know it. he's one of those like you'll know him as soon as you see him kind of dudes uh, Thomas Kretschmann uh, he's just been he's been in tons of stuff he's awesome and so like they get down there and they're traveling up the river and immediately something is, is wrong right like everything is wrong and they end up awakening something in this place that begins to hunt them and, and terrorize them and like this the found footage techniques are fantastic absolutely fantastic I mean there are like camera people getting pulled off the boat and they they somehow recover the cameras and you see like the shot of their cameras they are being pulled away it's it's great I'm not gonna say it's perfect right some of the episodes are so so there's only eight of them so it's, you know it's not like there's too much opportunity for them to be terrible uh, the second episode is particularly great because they find a field dedicated to lost children and it is just a an entire like valley in in the woods that is populated by nothing but doll heads (gasps) thousands and thousands of hanging doll heads and it is phenomenal oh my goodness it's so good uh, yeah, I love the river. It may be my favorite found footage thing ever, especially as they get deeper into it, because it does get a little. It goes a little weirder, tries to have like a little mythology of its own. Not quite as bad as where paranormal like, uh, you know, paranormal stuff went, but yeah, um, I I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Apparently, Netflix was vying to try and and get it for Netflix way back when it was canceled in twenty twelve, I think. Um, and then that died, and, and I guess the streaming rights have just kind of lapsed. Nobody's really airing it anywhere, so you might have to hunt around to find it. But who, man, it's good. And, and so like the the found footage conceit with this one is that they, as part of the show that they're filming, they wire up the entire boat because it's like the boat that the family used to travel around on when they were filming, you know, the guy's show. They wire the entire boat with cameras everywhere in every room. And then the, they're, the producer is actually on the boat, and, and like he's cutting stuff as they're going, and then shipping it off and sat by satellite to try and make the show that they're going to make. And it's, it's good. It's really good. Uh, like I said, but I, I think it was legitimately too scary for, for network TV. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll try and get you uh, some we'll try and find a copy of it somewhere. I'm sure it's on Amazon or something. So you can check it out because it's really good. It was also a very early. Uh, Jason Bloom production. I want to say kind of right around the time Bloom was getting big, you know, Paranormal Activity was. I mean, if if Friday, if uh, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street was the the film that built New Line Cinema, Paranormal Activity is the film that built Bloomhouse Studios, right? Like, yeah. So, um, so it was right around that time that you know Paranormal Activity was huge. Insidious would had come out and become big. Sinister came out that year so I mean it was like Blum trying to get his hands into as much stuff as possible and uh, man it's it's pretty solid I'm a big fan um all right it, it, sidebar so let's get back to to <laughs> found footage in general it's important After to that. talk
1: about found footage though just overall and and other interesting things that are going on cuz this movie isn't paranormal activity and it's not with Project. Not. So nope. what is it?
0: So as above, so below is probably the highest concept found footage film that I'm aware of. There are some others, but they, they generally when found footage for me gets too far away from the everyday, it, it starts to break down as, as a, as a format for sure. And as a genre kind of definitely, um, Cloverfield being a prime example, you know, the pyramid being another example. Which they, the pyramid's problem. Uh, I don't know if you saw the pyramid either. It was it was a, a French one about these people exploring a, a pyramid, obviously. Um, but I honestly can't they, remember they, if I did or not. It's not very good. Alexander Aha was one of the producers, but he didn't direct it, and they straight up just dropped the format at the end. Like there's just scenes where they just have a camera set up in the corner because they couldn't figure out how to film it, found footage. But it's still you know, loosely in the found footage genre. So As Above, So Below, I think, is, is very grounded, right? The space that it takes place in, very grounded. But it has this really interesting hook concept in that the thing that they are searching for is the Philosopher's Stone. Right. They're looking and not the Harry Potter one. Yeah. Sorry. They're they're looking for the secret to eternal life from alchemy. And it's it's an interesting hook. Um, in some ways I think it's one of the weaker components of the film because found footage doesn't give you much time to develop exposition. They yeah. they front load this really hard with exposition to make it work. And and it does. It really does. But it is certainly it's it's certainly sort of weaker in certain spots because they keep coming back to this idea of the philosopher's stone and what is it and, and things like that but um i don't think it's enough to to sort of detract from what the film's trying to do so what we have really is a a phd student or well she's not a student anymore she's she's got multiple phd's she's a researcher is sort of following in her father's footsteps to find the Philosopher's Stone, right? And she believes that she has um, found the the final piece necessary to get the specific location of the Philosopher's Stone. Um, So the failure of this film, as I mentioned, was not financial. It made money. uh, It made way more than its budget. Definitely in that, that space that is very common with horror films now where you keep your budget tight budget low, you release it theatrically, as big and wide as you can, grab as much quick, basically quick cash as you can make in a couple of weekends and call it good, right? And if you can get four times your budget, bam, you're a success. And so that's definitely what As Above, So Below did, but it feels particularly suited to a project like this. This feels like a film that it was any, if it was any bigger, I think it would be a mistake. If it was any smaller, they probably couldn't have pulled it off. It's it's one of those like, right in the exact spot it should be. Um, but its real failure came in its critical reception. Uh, this film was loathed when it was released. Um, its its tomato meter score now out of about seventy eight reviews is a little bit higher than its initial release, from what I can tell. It's about a twenty six percent. But again, a lot of these have come in later, and and this film has found a, a pretty good footing now. There are a lot of like this movie, and rightly so, um, but at the time, I, I I struggled to find anybody saying something positive about it in its its slate of release reviews. Nobody thought this movie was any good. A couple people thought it was passable. So the Dowdle brothers, we mentioned, they did quarantine the American remake, the shot for shot remake of Wreck, which was fine. It was totally okay. There's nothing fantastic about it. Wreck was Wreck is much better, but. Quarantine was perfectly acceptable, especially for found footage. But then they made Devil. Um, which I don't know if you remember Devil. Wasn't that um,
1: M. Night Shyamalan?
0: It it was it was one of M. Night Shyamalan's early attempts to to sort of farm out his ideas himself. as movies. <laughs> yeah, like to basically just attach his name to projects to get them made. Um it was it was one of those like story by M Night Shyamalan, which sounds like M Night Shyamalan wrote this on the back of a napkin and handed it to somebody and said make it and then they did because he could get anything he wanted at that time. Um so I don't cuz I don't know if you remember this, but there was supposed to be this whole sequence of films for a little bit called The Night Chronicles. <laughs> And it was just supposed to basically be like, you know, missives from the desk of M. Night Shyamalan, right? He was really and,
1: trying to hitchcock himself.
0: Yes. He had bought hook, line, and sinker into the line that he was the next Hitchcock. And and this was him attempting to sort of kick that off. And it it doesn't it doesn't go anywhere. Uh Bad the luck. devil is fine. Devil is fine. Like it I remember watching it and being like, Oh, you know, okay, you know, sure. Yeah, I mean that's that's fine. But it is it it's not great. It's it's the one <laughs> listeners, if you don't remember this film, it's the one where it was like people caught in an elevator movie. It's it's a Twilight Zone episode yeah. expanded to feature length and you can feel it. Right. Um But I think that the you know, Dowdle did a good job with that one too, especially on a constricted set, limited visuals, right? Some interesting special effects work it very much is, is sort of like where he winds up going with this movie, um, which has many of the same sort of hallmark features. And it it was okay. It made money again. It was, it was a super low budget. It was like $10 million. Um, The running time, it was only 80 minutes long. That was the thing I remembered, you know, the minimum length to be considered a feature film that can be released nationally in the United States is an 80 minute film, including credits. And that is exactly how long Devil was, which tells me that it was intended to be like a half hour, half hour, you know, episode of something. And they expanded it to feature length when they shouldn't have. But it was exactly 80 minutes. I remember walking out, being, looking at my watch and being like, whoa.
1: I Bet they made the credits roll slower.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the kind of stuff you do when you're trying to hit that 80 minute feature length stuff. Is your you you run the credits a little slower. Let's put a special a thanks
1: section in. Special thanks to our moms. Here they are listed alphabetically.
0: <sighs> and that's, you know, and this film too is is very swift, right? It it wastes yeah. no time and I appreciate that. I love that. We've talked about the length of modern film. Uh, this one's more a more traditional 100 minutes, right? And and I think you could have maybe trimmed 10 minutes off of it. That's but you know even then 100 minutes is is a swift moving roller coaster ride at this point compared to most films so it's it's failure was critical uh, i didn't pull any of the reviews because they all literally said the same thing and that was decent proud, found footage conceit usage cliched ending stupid ideas there's really every every single one um they didn't like <laughs> I, there were a few people who complained about the cinematography, which I found hilarious. Because I was like, "Really? Are you gonna you gonna fault the cinematographer in a found footage move in a ca- movie in a cave? Like, yeah, it's gonna be dark. I'm sorry <laughs> if that You're moving if, the camera around uh, so much, you know. it's
1: shaking everywhere. I can't see anything. I don't and understand. To be honest,
0: there is a lot of stuff going on before they get there too. I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of footage, you know, just out in the world, but yes, it, this is a movie that takes place in a cave with headlamps and like, you know, I guess what we could consider quote unquote naturalistic lighting. Um, so it is dark and it is difficult to see, uh, the end, they kind of break with that a little bit, the headlamps get a little stronger, you can see a little bit further. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's okay. But yes, if if you don't like cameras that jump around and you don't like dark, this is not the movie for
1: you. Yeah, and if you don't like that technique, I think what a lot of people hate about found footage from like a filmmaking perspective, and maybe they don't realize it, is that typically something will happen off camera and it won't be captured until it's already happening.
0: (laughs) Right, the the camera is, is catching up as the action is occurring.
1: And if a um, found footage movie isn't doing that, then they're they're not really making a found footage movie. That that was one of my issues with paranormal activity is the setup of the film has it to where you capture absolutely everything scary that happens most of the time mm-hmm. and it yeah. it kills it a little bit because you kind of you need that you know, falling behind sort of what's going on, confusion because that's that's part of the the genre if we're going with that.
0: Definitely. And I've really enjoyed some of the, the modern attempts to spice this up using uh, modern, um, you know, like computer techniques. Um, uh, if you've never seen Searching, I don't know if we ever talked about that one. Uh, it was the one that starred uh, John Cho, whose daughter goes missing. And then he basically spends 24 hours going through all these social media posts and connecting with people over FaceTime to try and find his daughter. And it's all done through a single like computer window for like 99% of it. Basically until the final moment when, you know, things kind of break. All of it's done as if, you know, we're looking out. We're simultaneously the camera looking at the screen, but then oftentimes we're also looking at the camera on the MacBook as it's filming the world, you know, staring back. Mm. It's very cleverly done, excellently executed. And and so I would also throw that into a, a found footage genre. Um, Unfriended did a similar thing. There's also another one on Shudder that we've talked about before. Um, That's uh, you know was all filmed by people as if they're on a Zoom call, you know that kind and, of thing.
1: And and I know the the natural inclination for probably critics especially is to hate that because it's it's breaking the rules a little bit. Um, Absolutely. Because it's new media and nobody likes new media because it's new. Um, it's the same reason that people have such a visceral reaction to TikTok, even though, come on, it's just new and that's why you don't like it.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's just it's a thing that you don't understand. And I would put myself in that category. I mean, like I get TikTok, I understand the concept. I have no desire to engage with it myself. Um I have to engage with it, it I and I, I tell bad. people
1: it's for my job.
0: <laughs> well, for your in your case it is. Um <laughs> You know, for me, it would just be like, hmm, what's a funny six-second thing that I can have happen? Um, and then I have no ideas, and I feel terrible about myself. So. No memes. <laughs> I lack meme power. <laughs> but so, you know, I, I appreciate that this is still a genre that is evolving in its own way and, and finding new ways to to push back against, again, what we would consider, you know, traditional filmmaking techniques where the camera is this, this floating entity that exists outside of the action that we're observing. But for me, I think the found footage genre, when executed well, and you feel that camera in the world, right? And not the Fincher camera, not the, the, the great pervert watching you as you go about your business, but the actual living entity that's right there with you and is a part of what you're doing. I think it can can produce experiences that are, are second to none, especially mm-hmm. in terms of the, a genre like horror, which is meant to, you know, sort of inspire and engender all of these different feelings.
1: I am waiting for somebody to make use of the format with VR experiences. You know, we've done it in video games. I would love to see movies take that step.
0: I think, I think we're going to get there. Uh, VR, I think... Still lacks that saturation point, that pull-in point that everybody's really getting to. But um, my kids, we uh, we downloaded the Tested channel, which is uh, Adam Savage's uh, sort of VR channel to do like his his one-day builds and go around his shop and show off his you know prop collections and all that kind of stuff. And they love it because you know you can be literally like walking around him while he's working on something and. Uh, it's it's very cool. And I, I think we'll get there. But I, I think we need somebody with talent and, and vision to sort of push into narrative storytelling in that. And I know there are people who are working on it, I, definitely. Uh, and certainly in the gaming space, there are people doing that. But I, I agree. I think it's a, an interesting place um, to potentially go. But let's get into As Above, So Below. So um, basic synopsis of the story is we have a, a researcher uh, Scarlet Marlow uh, which I think is the Hate first it. of many. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible first, character name It's a terrible character <laughs> name It's obviously trying to, to do a little bit of Heart of Darkness there and then Scarlet of course is a name with a long literary history of mm. uh, you know <sighs> women who exist outside yeah. the social norms A
1: literary things. history of
0: <laughs> yeah, somebody who wrote this script was like, hey, I, I'm going to use, I'm going to use a bunch of like literary references as my names, because uh, we've got a character in this film called Papillon, <laughs> which, you know, uh, if, if you don't know, Papillon is butterfly mm-hmm. and is in and of itself uh, a film, a classic film uh, at this point. And a breed of dog. <laughs> <laughs> that too. Uh, but it's a classic film about uh, a, a person trying to escape a, a, a prison, like an island prison, I think. It's been a long time since so I've seen it. Mm. But uh, w- there are definitely some things that are kind of like uh, a little cringe, we'll put it that way. But again, not enough to, to bust the whole thing down. Not for me anyway. So Scarlett Marlowe is searching for the Philosopher's Stone, and she assembles her team and they head down into the Paris catacombs, which uh, because of a wall that she finds in a, a Iranian uh, cave system that's being destroyed uh, because it's heretical, uh, she's able to find and pinpoint the potential location uh, underneath Nicholas Flamel's house in Paris, France. And that's really all of the setup of the film. It doesn't get much deeper than that. Uh, we obviously go some other places, Course. But that's kind of the setup, right? We just need an excuse to get into those those skull-filled catacombs because that's where the magic's going to happen. Um, so again, critics panned this pretty hard. They felt that it was cliche. They felt the ending in particular was bad. Um, I guess we'll get there, but I, I don't know if I agree. I can certainly see that perspective because, um, again, I think the, the Philosopher's Stone stuff is some of the weaker stuff in this film. But if that sounds interesting to you, it is streaming uh, as of February 15th, 2021 on Netflix as of right now. So you can go check it out and, and watch it because I assume most people, if you're a big fan of films, you probably got a Netflix account and it's waiting right there for you. Um, So let's jump into our deep dive. Let's uh, kind of walk through the film. We're not going to get a silly go scene by scene, but we'll, we'll hit the major beats and uh discuss how as above so below you know sort of fits into this world of found footage and why uh, I think we can go ahead and say that we think it's a pretty good entry in this particular genre so we actually open on a bus in Iran and our main character Scarlet Marlowe, is on her way alone to find this this artifact this cave wall that she believes Holds the uh, the secrets to finding the philosopher's stone, uh, and much like we saw in the Mummy, which we talked about a few weeks back, um, there is a, a sort of calculated series of explosions and and some destruction that's going to take place. That's going to wipe this thing out. And so she's on this bus. She's traveling. Um, our first shot of the film is is the camera staring down at her knee before she flips it around and puts it to her eye, which I think is bold. Um, One of my big things with imitators of the found footage genre is that when you, when you put a a legitimate cinematographer in control of a found footage film, you can feel it pushing against every instinct that they have Mm -hmm. in their bodies to set up a shot, to make it look beautiful and perfect. But by its very hallmark, that's what it it can't be. Because if these are amateurs filming these things, then it's gonna be herky jerky and it's gonna turn sideways and the light's not gonna hit where it's supposed to. And you know, like that's what sells it as a found footage film. That's why Blair Witch was so effective at doing what it did, because they mm. were amateurs holding those cameras. They were untrained people who figured out how to do it as they went. And and you can tell that. That's obvious, but that's what makes it so good. And so I really applaud a film that doesn't open with like a beautiful desert vista (laughs) or, you know, some other establishing shot. It's just a a picture of a girl's knee inside of a bus. Yeah. Right. That's great because, you know, if I was flipping on a camera, I'm going to flip it on, holding it one way. And then if I'm going to film my face, I'm going to have to turn it another way. And I'm not going to cut in between that. And this film, I think, establishes that they understand that precedent very, very quickly. Um, and I think it's a pretty good opening. Uh, as I said, the first really 15 minutes of this movie is very exposition heavy. There's some good scares, some good moments, but they're really just trying to tell you everything you need to know as quickly as possible. So she is, is very clearly telling us, you know, hey, here's what's going on. We know she's in danger. You know, if you know anything about the Middle East and being in a European white woman in the Middle East, that's not a good idea, um, especially by yourself, you know, and at least the film is is you know sort of And it's like she's
1: a things. she's a reporter and they try to make it sound like like she's there on some dangerous assignment almost even though she's not but it's like because she's right. making the documentary there's like this extra added layer of danger i guess i don't know it's it's effective though and it does kind yeah. of explore the the underground danger and it sets up the the documentary and stuff and i like that because like I said, she got she has this like adventurer reporter explorer vibe, um, but it makes the documentary part a little bit more believable.
0: Yeah, because she's documenting these things. Yeah. Um, the other thing about this scene that's really good is that she's got sort of a guide. You know, she got into these tunnels through a secret hole in some guy's house that he had opened up, and and that's how she's doing this exploration. I love. And tomatoes. they set up very quickly that you know, she starts banging and making a bunch of noise as these people are, are sort of hunting them. And 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 it shows that Scarlet has very little care or concern for other people's safety or well-being, <laughs> and it stands in the way of what she wants, which in this case is the Philosopher's Stone. And so this guy is freaking out because she's like hammering on a wall, and he's like, hey, what are you doing? They're right here. You can't make this kind of noise. And she's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Don't worry about it you know, I have to get, I have to have this knowledge, right? And that's a a theme with Scarlet that we're going to see throughout this film. And I I don't know if it's a lesson that she ever really learns. I kind of don't think it is. Um, And maybe that's part of it is she never really is forced to deal with the fact that her sort of callous disregard for others is one of the main reasons why they get, you know, sort of stuck in this mess.
1: There's a suggestion that she's learned something at the end, but it's not confirmed by the movie, so you're sort of left wondering if she learned anything.
0: Right. Um, but the key moment is as these these tunnels are coming down, and, and again, the camera work is great because it's just right in her face as she's sprinting with the camera in her hand. It's a little bit contrived. you know. I, I imagine the hand would be more like at your side if you're sprinting full speed. But there is a brief moment where she sees a man hanging in the tunnel ensconced in red light, and that becomes important later. So she makes it out barely. uh it's I think it's heavily implied that the guy who was her guide was killed, uh, or at least they were separated and and he didn't make it out. I believe that's the case. Um, you know she she is able to escape with the knowledge she needs. She used her camera to record uh, as much of this it's like a uh, an onyx bull that they find, isn't it? It's like how, mm-hmm. and it's inscribed with everything. I think the guy no the guy does make it out but you know like they they barely make it out and and you know she is <laughs> uh definitely not super remorseful about putting their lives in danger but then we get uh you know again tonally speaking we get a very you know sort of Blair Witch setup where you know everybody looks nice and the cameras you know set up on a tripod and um you know, we get our our introductions. You know, sort of like her sitting on the rock talking about the Blair Witch, and you know, her little like documentary style inserts that they had filmed, and we get one of those. <clears throat> and this is by far the most egregious uh, egregious uh, you know exposition dump of the film, as she basically like lays out her bona fides. And I mean, this is basically Lara Croft, Catacomb Raider. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, that's really what we're establishing here is that she's brilliant and intelligent and she's already done all these amazing things and now she is on to this failed quest that also, I guess here's where we find out about her dad, that her father was also attempting to find the same thing but it failed and so she was kind of like following in his footsteps, so it's this family legacy or lineage. Um, And, you know, it's it's good, it's fine. But it's also very contrived, right? And it's part of this genre. Like, I mean, this is certainly the way to do it in this genre, but I'm not sure that I I, I really love this sequence uh, in the film. I, I think it could have been done better without being quite so forthright about it if they'd find a, kind of found a cleverer way uh, to get to it. But I don't know. It, it feels documentary-like, and like, and maybe that's the point. What do you think?
1: Um, I feel like the Philosopher's Stone stuff is maybe a little, a little too lighthearted for a horror movie. Like, because you said Laura Croft and like, that's, that's what I was trying to say earlier. Like she gives off this very Laura Croft vibe. And, uh, I don't know if that works in a horror movie quite Perfectly, I like it, but I also really like explorers and I like Laura Croft and I like Uncharted and that may just be pushing a personal button for me i'm not I'm not sure that it's super successful in the movie
0: It's a weird marriage you know because this this is at least the back half of this movie is is a straight- up horror film um like it, it has all of the hallmark. Qualities and conditions of a traditional horror film, found footage or not. But yet this half is all about like this fun adventure, and we're gonna yeah. go find this amazing thing, and you know, we're gonna break this ground. And we certainly have this tense opening, but we're not really being set up in any significant way for what we're about to get into. And I think part of the movie's flaw is that it it definitely needs to rely. On the very conventional understanding that a lot of people have about what the philosopher's stone is, and what alchemy is, and who Nicholas Flamel was, you know, we have all of these references within popular culture for these things to exist, and that's fine. Some the, do. the film's perfectly capable of treading on those ideas, and then expanding on them with your little documentary bits here and there, but
1: I don't think there was enough development of those things because but, I, uh, yeah. I, I don't think enough people know. Anything about alchemy. <laughs> I, don't, not, I don't think that that's a, that's a, a pretty typical thing.
0: <laughs> not the darker side of it, right? Like everybody knows the lead into gold stuff. And everybody understands the whole, like, we want to transmogrify. But yet, the history of alchemy is also tied with the, the history of the Age of Reason and, and the, the dark times before the Age of Reason, where all of that was developed and and all of the the religious implications of it and you know so the you know the guys who wrote this the Dowdle brothers they they had an understanding of that but the average
1: 17-year-old kid who's taking their group of friends to see a horror movie on a weekend does not have any concept of those things
0: <laughs> no and so when the film goes dark and it does I don't think that the philosopher's Stone stuff hangs with that, yeah, um, at least not that conventional understanding of what that is and how that functions and and so you know we'll get there but but ultimately the this section of the film is all about setting up that here's what she's looking for, and then you know the assemblage of the team, right she obviously can't go down here by herself, so her the conceit here is that even though she speaks five languages or something, three, four real languages and two dead ones or something. Um, she doesn't speak Aramaic. And she, because of the inscriptions that she found on this, this you know, strange ox in the middle of the Iranian desert cave system, um, it's it was covered in Aramaic. So she needs someone who can translate that for them. And so here we are very quickly introduced to George, uh, played by Ben Feldman. Um, who has been around for a long time. He's, he was on Mad Men uh, in some of the later seasons. Uh, he's on a, a pretty decent sitcom right now called Superstore, which is all about, like, Walmart. And he was that in placed... Cloverfield. He was in Cloverfield, <laughs> uh, indeed. So he, he's doomed. You're doubling up, man. Hell <laughs> of, of found footage horror films. Um, but Feldman, I, I think, is great. He's one of the stronger components of this film, and I... In, in researching this, I didn't realize this at the time, but it makes absolute sense watching the film. Uh, Feldman is actually claustrophobic, um, oh. apparently horrifically so. Oh. And while they were filming this, they had to give him frequent breaks where he could just legitimately freak the fuck out about where he was and what they were doing because he he could barely hold it together. And my goodness, that was probably the worst possible thing in the world for him to do. But it sure does sell the character and what he's going through. Um, you know, I am an
1: extremely claustrophobic person. And yeah. this movie is, wow, it's a lot. Like, you have to be okay with a movie pushing that button, with, with triggering claustrophobia, because it will. Um
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I, like, there are a couple of crawling through stuff scenes that are I'm, very tight. Like I'm
1: sensitive enough that I get I get triggered by claustrophobia playing Minecraft. So this movie mm-hmm. was like substantially scarier than that because it's it's not only claustrophobia underground tight tunnels, it's also horrible scary things in those tunnels. So that's yeah, it's that's it's really, a real
0: trifecta of. of I don't even know how he condonos. did this. Uh, yeah, wow. I, I I applaud him for for sticking with it because I can't imagine that he read that script and was at least not partially aware of what he was getting in for. But man, to be in those catacombs underneath the street, even Mm-mm. if you know that there are people around you that are looking out for you and are going to keep you safe, mm, nope, there's there's some rough stuff in here. Um, so you know he she recruits him. He's repairing a bell tower. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. that's a thing that people definitely do, you know. Um, but he's repairing a bell tower, and then they they go real Indiana Jones, and they like are in the museum. They, they break into a museum, off a wall, and burn something on the back of it to find an inscription X in Aramaic. Marks the spot. <laughs> it's it's just very again. It's it's very like,
1: and it's hard to tell raider, where the movie's you know. going. At this point, like if you don't know that this is a horror movie going in, you'd be like, "Ah, oh, what? What is this?"
0: Yeah. Oh, is this a found footage adventure movie? Okay, That's which good. is kind of you a know. cool idea. Yeah. No, it's not a bad idea at all. Um. So they're discussing it. They're they're you know we do get a couple of scenes of them kind of piecing together this quote unquote mystery, which, um, you know they. If you know anything about the search for this philosopher's stone, this magical thing. It's been happening for centuries, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people searching for this thing. And, and these two, like, you know, mid 20 year olds figure it out in 20 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> um, You know, now, granted, it's 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 based upon, you know, this years of research and all of these different it's things. It's just like it, how it,
1: Indy finds the grail, you know?
0: Yeah, it, it all comes together. No problem. Um, so they figure out that it's in it's well they don't figure out it's in the catacombs they figure out it is it is a certain distance underneath Flamel's house because there's all in alchemy there were all these measurements of the distance between man and God and the distance between heaven and hell and they're able to extrapolate from these you know inscriptions that have been hidden for centuries the the rough approximate distance of the the stone from Flamel's you know, house in in Paris, straight down. So then it becomes, well, how do we get down there? Well, the only way to reliably get underneath the city is through the catacombs. So, you know, they're they're building very carefully. Okay, oh, okay, well, we need to go down to find the stones. We're going to have to go through the catacombs. We're going to need somebody to guide us. So they go on a, a standard walking tour of the catacombs. And, and they're talking about their plans, kind of breaking off from the, the group now and then. And then there's, like, a mysterious dude just sitting down there. And he says, oh, fine, Papillon. Papillon can show you where to go with that. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he disappears shortly thereafter. So they go to some French club. A couple, don't a couple um, other
1: creepy things happen down there?
0: Yeah, I mean, they, like, um, they, they hear some noises. They see some things. Some stuff that comes back later in the film, but you know when they break off from the group, they they definitely see some some strange stuff. Um, so we get a, a couple of sequences where where Papillon's kind of like introducing us to his crew, you know, who are apparently catacomb <laughs> delvers. I, I don't know. I guess it's a thing.
1: Spelunkers. Urban, well, yeah, you know,
0: urban explorers, I guess, would be the, the modern term for what these people are doing. But they've, they've got their own little ways and entrances into the catacombs. Um, and, and we do get some good setup and payoff, right? We see that you know Papillon has uh, tags that he puts up to mark the locations that he's been to in the catacombs and, and the various places that they hang out. And we do get uh, a couple of really good scenes where he establishes, like, here are the things you need to survive in the catacombs, right? You've got to have this, you know, you've got to have water, you've got to have batteries, you've got to have all this stuff. And it it seems, it it does that really good thing that horror movies do, where they very clearly establish the rules of survival right out of the gate. Here are the things that you need to be able to survive in this strange place. And, And you know full well that at some point they're going to be deprived of all of things and there and therefore like, horror right yeah. um, so the the claustrophobia starts very quickly because Papillon shows them that his personal entrance into the catacombs is straight up like a two-by-two two hole in the ground in a train tunnel uh, you know like it's absolutely awful um, there is a really good couple of scenes where Ben Feldman's character is is very much like a nope not going down there not yeah. happening not gonna do it that voice Scarlett of reason just completely bullies him into taking part um <laughs> which uh which I, I I thought was pretty funny, but the nice thing is is his hand gets sort of his hands get tied because they get attacked by the cops uh, immediately, and and uh, you know they, they sort of have to escape into the catacombs so they don't get um, so they don't get uh, arrested because what they're doing is very much illegal, right? Uh, you're not supposed to go into the catacombs. I remember reading there was a story not too long ago about somebody getting down the catacombs and getting lost, um, and and apparently the one thing people don't realize is how cold it is. Like the catacombs are like Francis barely cold. above freezing.
1: In general it's, it's, France is pretty cold in, in general. Like it's colder than people think it is.
0: Yeah, I mean it's so, Central Europe. Underground. I mean, they're on the same they're on the same band <laughs> that we are, you know, basically. Yeah. Um, so their their found footage conceit for this one is a mixture of helmet cams, basically what we would, you know, now consider GoPros. They aren't GoPros, but um they're everybody's got these helmet cams on, or at least most people do. Uh, then we have some traditional cameras because Scarlet is the whole, you know, conceit is that Scarlet has this this cameraman named Benji who is filming her on this this journey. Right, the first part in Iran it was just her with her own camera, but now Benji's been brought on board. To sort of now that she has these clues to where the stone is, he's coming along to film this expedition. You know,
1: for really like that character
0: too. Yeah. So our, our main characters, I guess we can really just lay them out. We've got Scarlet who is our, our Laura Croft, Catacomb Raider. Uh, we've got George, played by Ben Feldman, who is the guy who reads Aramaic and doesn't want to be in the cave. Um, we've got Benji, the camera guy, who doesn't really seem to have any baggage, but he definitely has a thing for Scarlet that is maybe requited. Uh, we don't really know. It seems like they might have hooked up at some point. Um, but He's definitely into her and probably doing this because he's just into her. Which Same with okay. George, really. Yeah, George is in the same boat. It's It, it almost felt like at some point they were going to build to some kind of like love triangle thing, and it just doesn't happen. And I'm glad it doesn't. It doesn't need to. Uh, then we've got Papillon, uh, who is their their French catacomb guide. Uh, is it Susie, isn't it? Like Susie and the Banshees. Um, mm, yes. Is one of his people. And then what's the other one? Wreck? Or Rock? I don't remember his name. But there's a, another guy that's with Papillon who also... Um, uh, Zed. No, it's Zed. Yeah. Uh, who also you know is is one of these urban explorers. Who uh, you know has a bunch of experience down here. So Papillon clearly establishes like, here are my tags. These are the places I've been. These are the areas I've explored. And and they kind of continue on like that and just kind of establish the catacombs. You know from there. There's a but,
1: suggestion that they're gonna go to places in the catacombs that people have not gone or have not been to in a long time.
0: Yeah, and our first our first shots of the catacombs, that's exactly what it is, is there's like a you know, there's tons of, of graffiti and, and tagging and but then they just keep pushing deeper and, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And you know, there's you know, there's water everywhere, they're up in like waist deep. Uh, you know, water as they're going through these tunnels and stuff. And it's, 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 it's very intimidating, right? Right off the bat, like this place is just not a place that you want to be. And, you know, we talked about this a bit with session nine, how a location can really, truly shape a project like this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And for this one, their desire to shoot in the catacombs, um, for real, is is just it, it's an incredible choice, and it really does shape the entirety of the movie, um, for good and for bad. Right, I said like there are some elements. I mean, if you have any kind of claustrophobic feelings, this movie is going to be very difficult to watch. Very difficult to watch. Um, but it just gives the film a, a weight that if they had you know, done it all on a soundstage and built it all out with like foam rocks and stuff, I, I really don't think it would have been as effective. But you really do feel the location in this. At least I did, you know, when I watched it. Um, so we get our first real kind of weird event as they're moving through. He, they start finding candles that have been burned. And then they just find a candlelit room where a bunch of women are chanting.
1: And they do that uh, terrifying thing where someone stares sort of out of focus. And it's just, there's a lot of unnerving staring. It's it's very creepy.
0: Yes. Um, but I love how they, they kind of just play it off. Yeah. Because <laughs> cause he's like, oh, there's so many weird people down here. And I'm like, really? Are, you,
1: that... are you okay with this? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not okay with this.
0: It's a bunch of half-naked painted women singing in a strange room in the catacombs. And one of them's
1: looking I mean, I at me.
0: <laughs> I mean, I know it's Europe, I guess, but come on. Uh, but yeah, like, it's it's just...
1: It happens all the time in France.
0: Yeah. Like, it, it's definitely one of those, like, we're setting something up for later and we just, we need the characters to be aware of it, but at the same time, we we don't really want to spend a lot of time on it right now. Then we get our first real, like I guess, conflict of our little caving adventure here, because they they have a rough map, a sort of at least I guess, rough idea of where they need to go, and they reach a sort of fork, and one is a, a, a section that's been kind of blocked off, and they start sort of clearing it, and then Papillon's like, no, 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 we just need to go through this area. This is the space we need to go, and it is through a a a tiny tiny tunnel full of human bones just chock full of human bones stacked to the brim dare I say with human bones and he's like no 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 we need to go this way and he he's so adamant he's like "No, no 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 we're not going that way and then he reveals that they had a friend another urban explorer and he went down that tunnel and he was never seen again he never came back.
1: This would have been useful to know
0: earlier. Yeah, and so Scarlet's like, but according to our map, this is the way to go. If we go down this tunnel, we're she's we're so
1: there. eager to crawl on those human remains. <laughs> she's very excited about
0: it. And it's so yeah, Papillon like makes his case. He's like, she's like, but it'll take so much longer because the tunnels are going to go. You know, like we're not being shown these maps. I'm glad, but. They have this big conflict. Papillon convinces them to all go that way. Most people are totally not cool with it, uh, you know, because of the human bones. But they they all relent uh, because the story needs to happen, I guess. And, they and she does kind and- of
1: insist. I mean, she's really insistent. And she yeah, just sort no. of plows through everybody, which is nice. I mean, the character is at least consistent with that. Um, but yeah, it's like we need to move this. Forward. Creepy things need to happen. Let's go in the bone tunnel. <laughs>
0: and then poor Benji, poor poor Benji. He he gets stuck. Oh. And this is this is legitimately hard to watch. Uh, Edwin Hodge plays Benji, who he's been around for a long time. Um, he was in the Purge movies very famously. He has been the he he was the. um in, in the first Purge, he's the guy who gets let in, right? And then he sort of come, He uh-huh. shows up in all of the other Purge films at various points to sort of show how they all link together. Um, Whatever. <laughs> he's he's Aldous Hodge's uh, brother uh, who was in... Uh, he was the the cop uh, family friend in The Invisible Man. Mm. Um, like, just... I like Edwin Hodge. He's really good. He's been around for a long time. I like what he does. Um, I like this character a lot. And, and this was very he's so believable. He's so sympathetic, right? He's just like, I want Benji to be okay. And when he gets stuck in this thing, a lot of it's the camera work, right? A lot of it, they are obviously in a little tunnel. That much is obvious. Yes, of course. But the camera work is so chaotic and frenetic and the sound work really ramps up for the first time in a while and he he basically gets trapped he's like the last guy coming behind everybody else so that he can get the footage and then he gets stuck and then the camera just gets flipped around and it's in his face the whole time and he is just super selling it like his performance is so good he's again maybe because he was he just seems legitimately angry and afraid yeah and and just gets Completely, uh, you know, thrown off his game, and eventually they just kind of have to pull him out.
1: I'm always kind of looking for a movie that will offer what I felt when I read Ted's caving page for the first time. Little creepy pasta mm. throwback for sure. everybody, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like scenes in this movie really, really hit that mark. Um, I know they made uh, Ted the caver movie i can't track it down anywhere um but i've I st- i'm still looking for for films to do that because i think that was a really compelling story i think that was a neat thing but it kind of made me wish for more scary spelunking scenes in movies like this and and this one is is super effective it's really scary
0: yeah and nothing, it, I mean, nothing nothing horror analog happens. for this kind of feeling or experience is really the descent Neil Marshall film mm-hmm. in, in 2005 I think um, in, in terms of like oh I'm just I'm trapped in a cave like that that whole concept like mm-hmm. this is one of the only other films that I feel like it's, has done a, a really really excellent job but they, they make it through the tunnel they make it through and when they come out on the other side according to Papillon they're, we're, they're supposed to be in this very specific location but when they come out on the other side they're literally in the room that they just left but everything is reversed, and so here I think is easily the most interesting component of this film. Because uh, one of the thing this movie really plays with effectively is the concept of mirroring, right? Yeah. Of of reflection within the world. As above, so below, right? And and so basically, what they've they've entered into, at least the way that I interpret. Film is that they've entered into sort of a mirror version of the catacombs, that is not the Paris catacombs. It's something else. It is certainly set within that that milieu, but they have quite literally entered into to another place. And uh, so there's a, a sign, a marker on the wall, and one of the first things they note and um i guess it's ben feldman's character it's george who says hey this is the site of like a really horrific it was like a cave in or something like the street caved in and people mm-hmm. fell into the catacombs and died and and he's like it was right here and and papillon's like he's like that's crazy like that that this, we shouldn't be there like that we're not even close to that or something right like everybody's completely you know like hey something's wrong and then they hear like a phone ring yes right and so really things begin to to pick up the the weirdness begins to get layered on here very very deeply
1: and it's doing and some some real stuff that's sort of reminiscent in in terms of scares of like a silent hill game
0: um yeah no i mean it, it, i think this movie is wearing a lot of its a lot of its influences on its sleeve in a good way right and there absolutely is um, a lot of there's a lot of mystery here there's a lot of ambiguity that they don't necessarily explain which I always love in a horror film uh, I, I think horror films that feel the need to explain every little thing generally they're they're just sort of breaking their own mythology down and and not giving you space to sort of embrace and and engage with the film, you know, yourself, right? So they find a piano down there, which again, Ben Feldman's character, George says that he used to play piano with his little brother all the time. And that the, the a four key was always messed up. So they couldn't finish the song they were playing. And of course the key on the piano, um, you know, has the same, the same thing. So this movie, you know, much like new mutants uh, in our discussion before every character, almost every character has a tragic backstory. And so the second act of the film, as we go deeper into the catacombs is really about revealing who these people are and where they've come from. So we're starting to get a little picture of George uh, Ben Feldman's character he had a relationship with his little brother. He mentions earlier that, you know, they had played in caves together when they were kids. and He didn't do that anymore. The ringing phone, we find out, is Scarlet ignoring a phone call from her father. Uh, that ended up being a very important phone call that she should not have avoided. And so Scarlet, you know, drives deeper into the caves to try and get to the phone. She knows exactly what that is. And, you know, these scenes, I think, are really effective because they're, they're obviously wrong, right? Something is wrong with the world. We don't know what. And, and things continue to, to sort of layer in bad directions. Um, when she picks up the phone, you know, everything is suitably covered in dust. You know, nothing looks new. I don't know. What do you what do you think of of, of this? Because this is, I think, where we've taken a very sharp turn, like very very quickly, right? From fun catacomb adventure with Lara Croft, catacomb raider, and her band of merry misfits, and now we're like phones ringing in mysterious places, finding pianos.
1: <laughs> I I wish. What do you think? I wish that they had established that tone in the first caving scene when she goes in to look at the statue. You know, if a few more creepy things had happened, like I sort of wish that the opening had been more like the scenes that were down in the catacombs and maybe we hadn't had the explosions and the the craziness um, that it maybe just would have been too creepy and too scary for her to do by herself and that's why she recruits people to help her. Um, because it it does feel like such an abrupt change. Although I know the movie was getting at it because the marketing for this was so effective. You know, everybody knew this was a horror movie going in. So it's, it's not like it surprises you, but at the same time, I just don't know. I don't know if I would have done that. I would have liked to have seen a a preface to this horror in the opening of the film. I think that would have helped a lot.
0: Yeah. I, Again, I think a little bit more of the the danger of seeking this thing. You know, what's happened to the other people who have sought this thing? Um, Scarlet's father included, I, I think, would have been, you know, fairly interesting. Because after the phone incident, the a, a new character is introduced, in this case, uh, La Taupe. Um, and La Taupe is a, a member of Papillon's, uh, Papillon's crew who... Presumably is the one that they mentioned, saying he went to the caves and never came back out again. Uh, am I correct in that? I think that's that's who they were talking about. Yes. I don't know if we know for sure, but um, I, I believe Latope is also the one who was sitting in the catacombs that advised them to go find Papion to lead them. Uh, so, like, to, clearly to he's them.
1: not a real person,
0: <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, something else. You know, something else now. Um, but so there's like a cave in or, or an almost cave in, like the walls are cracking. So they've got to move quickly. And I just, you know, I love the cinematography here. It's, it's very natural. It's, you know, it's uncomfortable. It's tight. Uh, it's, it's just characters looking around. And so the camera's moving very quickly. Again, it's one of the things that a lot of people find annoying about found footage films. It certainly makes it harder to watch, but it does enmesh you in the world. You certainly feel like a participant in this. As opposed to, you know, just a passive observer of a film, like you feel like you're, you know, the camera work is putting you right in these places, which I think is a, a really effective thing. So for some reason, even though they've they've not seen this individual for a very very long time, everybody just decides to follow Latope, <laughs> um, and Latope takes them to a hole, uh, a really big one.
1: I'm sorry if this dude showed up anywhere, I would not trust him. Uh, he doesn't no, give no, off trustworthy I mean, vibes, and if he led me to a hole, I would definitely not go in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, they make a, they make a big show about how he's been gone for a long time, but yet, you know, <laughs> let's totally go down out, this hole
1: just, that he wants us to go in.
0: Lead the way, Taupe. Let, let us find the. You know, yeah, let us let us go find the the philosopher's stone with the help of our mysterious friend who appeared as if from nowhere. Oh no! The philosopher's stone can bring people back from the dead. Hmm, that's an interesting side fact that I wouldn't have thought about. <clears throat> but yeah, so they they find this this hole, and and Scarlet has some some bullshit reasons for why going down the hole is a great idea. And and it's you know leading them to the the place they need to be. And and. I guess this is the point in the, the horror film where you're, what everybody's like, yeah, these are all really bad choices that are being made here. Nobody should do this. Um, and, and, you know, but, but nobody's really listening and, uh, poor Benji <sighs> or, poor, poor Benji. Um, he, he slips. Uh, I forget exactly what happens. He, he ends up, you know, sort of injuring his hands. Um, as he goes through. And I think there's a lot of interesting sort of subtle and frankly, not so subtle religious, you know, imagery in this. And so I think in many ways, his hand injury is supposed to be, you know, sort of like the hand injury of Christ on the cross. You know, Benji becomes the first sort of sacrificial figure, I suppose, um, in some ways. Uh, But, you know, the injuries have begun and and you know things are obviously turning around <laughs> people
1: are dying now <laughs>
0: yeah we're we're getting ready to see some death now then we get the we get one of the films first excursions into really fascinating sound design so they're in one of the tunnels and all of a sudden none of them can hear right and we can't hear either uh, and basically, it sounds like everything is underwater. And then they start getting uh, assaulted, like their cameras are going out. We see a, the face of a young boy who we find out is Ben Feldman's you know, younger brother. And, you know, somebody's like, what was that? What was that? And then Latope's like, no, the question's not, what was that? Who was that? <laughs> who made that noise? And I don't know, I, I feel like this sequence of the film, it's a little vignette right? It's a little bit like a little piece of a thing happening, piece of a thing happening, yes. But I think it does a very good job of starting to build, starting to build the tension of, of what's going on here. That they're involved in something much, much scarier than even just being trapped in these catacombs so there's there's dead ends they're they're not you know finding the places they need to find um Latope takes a weird turn and he ends up killing somebody doesn't he doesn't Latope kill the the girl caver uh, yes Susie? yes yeah so i mean like they have to do some swimming they're Alright, maybe maybe it's just me, but they they find a spot, they're able to identify it as like, okay, it's through this spot, so they, it's like a lock of some kind, right? And if they get it wrong, it'll kill them all. Um, so they figure it out, they open the door, and they find a a Templar Knight, mm. right? And so this is Goofy. Uh, I'll I'll freely admit it that they find an undisturbed body of a Templar knight that's preserved because of course you know alchemy and it proves that they're like you know on the right track they're headed in the right direction and and they end up finding this sort of ancient stone wall and they're able to interpret it and they figure of out all of the magic things and then she realizes that the, the alchemist stone is staring them right in the face and all she has to do is is it basically just pop it out just pop it out of the wall and and that's it and so she does so she extracts it as any good tomb raider would and uh i guess Papillon, they were promised treasure. I guess that's the thing we kind of forgot to mention. The whole reason they came down was because they were told that uh, there would be treasure down there as well and that they could have the treasure or all the treasure Um, while she just got the stone. And so they're trying to get in there and do that and and it's all just a big dodge. And then basically once... <laughs> Once that happens, uh, quite literally, all hell breaks loose. Would you say? Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, this is one of those movies where you can you can almost see them flipping the the literal switch in the movie to start the action, <laughs> start the scary stuff.
0: Yes, very much so. Um, so there, again, there's cave-ins, there's problems. They they extract the stone and they head out. Latope loses his mind. He kills. He breaks the girl's neck. Which like, um,
1: how did they not see that coming? The guy is creepy. He acts creepy the whole time.
0: Yeah, he like, well, he does more than break her neck. I, I will yeah. say the the gore in this is very, very well done. It's um,
1: it's brief too. Like it shows you what you arguably have to see, but it it doesn't it doesn't glorify any of it. You know, it still remembers that there's supposed to be a character holding the camera so they wouldn't point the camera at those horrible things necessarily. Um, And I kind of appreciate that because it's remembering what the film is supposed to be.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's certainly, you know, the camera is still there to tell that story, but it's also there's a person holding it that doesn't want to look at that and has other things in mind that they need to do. But the, the death of, of Susie also establishes, because they, they have the Philosopher's Stone now, and very famously the Philosopher's Stone is supposed to be able to bring people back from the dead or, or heal, you know, heal you know, terrible wounds and things like that. And so they, they still are trying to world build a little bit, and they establish that the Philosopher's Stone can't fix dead. If you are hurt, you can do that, but it can't bring you back from the dead. And so they try to heal Susie, doesn't work. So they leave her body behind, keep going. Um, because you know, now we have the, we have the issue that they have to get out, right? They've accomplished the mission theoretically, but now they need to get away. And what they quickly discover is that there's, there's no way for them to do that. Now, the camera work, I think in this gets really, really good because, it's doing a lot of what horror movies do, which are quick pans to show you something that might be there, might not be there, and then pan back and pan again, and it's you know it's gone. You know, the classic Michael Myers is standing at the end of the street, camera pans away, pans back, he's gone. Or you know, bend kind of down stuff. to splash water um, on
1: your face, and the killer is behind you in the mirror, but then when you lean up,
0: he's right. Gone. And and it's really well executed stuff, pretty yeah. much all throughout this, this set. So they're they're headed back down you know, the many, many long holes that they've had to travel through. <laughs>
1: this is a movie of many holes. <laughs> many
0: holes, uh, which again is a little bit of a Silent Hill thing. Uh, you know, very famously in Silent Hill 2, you had to... Uh, um, go down
1: like three gigantic holes. go down
0: like three gigantic holes, which again is tied to, to some various mythologies about hell and, you know, leaping to the, the underworld kind of thing. Um, and unfortunately, this is where... Our good friend Benji, sweet, sweet Benji, uh, meets his end. Uh, Good night, sweet Getting ready to repel. And one of the many sort of recurrent images in this is of a woman holding a child, um, which we've we've seen little glimpses of. And uh, he is is startled as he grabs his camera and turns around to, to make his way down. He's startled by... Uh, a woman holding a child who who leaps at him in a nice little, little whip pan. And, and we just see his body hit the ground. Terrible. Just, just face first into the ground. And, and he is, is just dead. Um, And, and again, I mean, I, I, the brutality of it is, is shocking and striking, but at the same time, it, I think it makes it effective. It, again, if we're going to look back at the Blair Witch, it feels very much like the Blair Witch, that when violence does finally occur, it's swift, it's sudden, it's often violent. Um, And that's
1: that's what makes it so realistic, is that that is how real life violence often happens. You know, it's not a slow build-up often. It is sometimes just explosive, it's sometimes sudden, it's you know, found footage is, is a a great way to explore that part of violence. And that's why I think it looks so brutal because I've seen this level of gore in plenty of movies before people with smashed faces and stuff. Um, But, you know, in something like a David Cronenberg body horror sort of thing, it's fake because it was never really presented to look real. But in this movie, because, you know, found footage, that's how the genre works, the violence is always going to be a little bit more unnerving, I think.
0: Definitely. I mean, it has a sort of Eastern Promises vibe, you know. I mean, maybe not Viggo Mortensen <laughs> beating men to death naked in a in a Russian bathhouse, but but it's it certainly has that level of you know history of violence, style brutality kind of thing, um, but amped up. I mean, it's still a horror film, you know, and horror films are designed to get scares, but this isn't. You know, it's not Jason flinging somebody against a tree in a sleeping bag or something like that you know that kind of overglorified violence um so the the scares continue to ramp up especially on George's part who you know again I think Ben Feldman it, his discomfort is really obvious in the film the way he's he's just sort of clutching himself and holding on to himself it it feels very natural feels very very real which again after knowing what I know about his performance in this it makes a ton of sense But he ends up seeing what his brother—they're uh, traveling through—and underneath the bones, he sees his brother like trapped under ice.
1: Yeah, his brother drowned.
0: And so that's that's the thing. Um, we basically what we're finding out here are the the dark secrets of, of all of these individuals. So, quick rundown: uh, Scarlet Marlowe, her father hung himself, and. He hung himself the night that he was trying to call her to apparently get some some reassurance from her or something. She didn't pick up the phone because she was busy. She had stuff going on, and he killed himself. So she carries a ton of guilt over that. Feldman used to go into caves with his little brother. His little brother got caught in one of the caves. He went to help him, died before he could get back with help. And, And we're about to find out Papillon's tragic backstory uh, which is that and I, I'm I, I'll go ahead and say it this is the most visually impressive scene in this film I, I I look at it and I watch it and I'm not entirely sure how they did it I'm sure it's much simpler than I would probably have than I than I probably making it out to be but it is a a truly shocking and fascinating scene because as they come around a corner, there's a fire burning and there is just straight up a car in the Paris catacombs. This I'm sure was a set. There is no way they, they were able to get a car into the Paris catacombs and set it on fire. No way in hell, but there's a car on fire in the catacombs. They come around the corner and sitting inside of it is it's, it's not La Taupe. This is the guy, the guy in the car is the guy who was sitting in the catacombs and told him to find Papillon. Right, so so that's the dude. So it wasn't Latope sitting there, if I remember right. It's this guy, because he's got like the curly hair or whatever. And so the dude sitting burning in the car is the guy who told him to find Papillon and bring him down to the catacombs in the first place. And then Papillon starts saying, you know, so it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault. And then the burning guy pulls him with him into the car, and then in, in probably the most fascinating special effect in this, the car collapses and all that is left of our good friend Papillon is two pairs of legs sticking up out of the rock. And that's it.
1: It was very sudden.
0: It's, it's super sudden. It's super effective. Um like it is it is a a absolutely fascinating effect. I mean again, it's it's a little bit CG. Which is super well executed uh, and shocking. And and I, I find it equal parts terrifying and hilarious that they try to help him, given that he's literally just two legs sticking up out of, out of rock. That they think that there's something they can do, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but we're down to our, our final three here, our sort of core group of three, uh, which is George, Scarlet, and uh, Zed. Which we do find out towards the end that the the woman carrying the child is Zed's, it's it's Zed, Zed's child. We don't really know the circumstances. I I certainly don't get the impression that they're dead, but he kind of abandoned his family. He didn't didn't do what he was supposed to, and so that's that's sort of the the apparition that killed Benji.
1: It reminds me a lot of Silent Hill, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's just all like the. This place is exploiting upon the, you know, sort of lingering failures and and personal faults of, of our protagonists, right? Which which good horror does, right? Um, I think horror has always relied upon the protagonist being less than than innocent, right? I mean, you know, the the whole concept of the, the slasher genre is built around well, you you did a bad thing, right? You gave up your virginity or you didn't attention in school or something drinking under as a result you deserve to die
1: you're doing drugs
0: (laughs) yeah and and that's that's the moral failing the moral and ethical failing that now justifies you being assaulted by this this horrific thing and this film is, is playing on that but it's not really that it's it's more just torture right these people are being tortured because as they discover when they they crawl they're they're quite literally crawling into hell, right? Abandon hope all ye who enter here, which is another, that's uh, Dante's Inferno, right? Um, You know, so the the whole concept here is that they've entered hell and now they're being tortured for their sins, right? That's the, the whole idea. So at least this film has a certain justification for why these things are occurring. But here's where I think the imagery if you're not bought into the film at this point the next the next things it chooses to focus on as as its horrific elements you're not going to be scared by if you're into it then you're probably going to be pretty legitimately terrified but the main things that get built up over this next sequence are a mysterious figure sitting in a fairly ornate wooden chair in a black robe and then carved faces in the rock, uh, in, in expressions of agony. Right. So yeah. that's really what we get sort of the, Great the design. ground that we tread over this next sequence. Um, and the, the, the black figure rises and they're wearing some kind of creepy, you know, white mask. There's a lot of screechings, a lot of screaming on the soundtrack. A lot of characters looking at cameras, breathing heavily. Um, it, again, all the thro- somebody all the watched a lot of the Blair Witch, <laughs> right? Somebody yeah. watched a lot of the Blair Witch, and and, and this good is because that that's final the pattern
1: that we want to see. We want to see more of this in found footage from you know Blair Witch rather than the Paranormal Activity stuff.
0: Right. Um, so the the faces in the rock bust out of the rock, and there are some kind of like. Gargoyle statue monster things. It's kind of hard to to say exactly what they are because we we really only get very scant glimpses of them. But one of them uh, takes George and bites his neck, um, gives him a, a mortal injury, definitely. But they're able to drag him away in time. And and so Scarlet attempts to use the stone on him to keep him alive. And and here's where things. I mean, I'm a pretty astute movie watcher. I, I watch a lot of movies. I so pay attention pretty well. But I think the movie has a problem here explaining exactly what the <laughs> problem is. What's going um, on? <laughs> yeah. So, in essence, what Scarlet realizes is that she doesn't have the actual stone. Um, that, in fact, she, she has been tricked, I guess, fooled um, into thinking that she took the stone. But what she took was actually, you know, not that. Um. And and so the the stone that she took was another trap, right? They've been caught in a series of traps established by Flamel and I, I don't know, maybe the Templar Knight. Who knows? But they built all these traps in to keep people from getting to the real stone. And so she has to take the stone back. And so the move in. in they've traveled a good distance at this point, right? Like they've gone down some holes. They've run through some caves. They've swum through some stuff. Uh, But now she realizes that she has to go all the way back to the wall where they found the stone, replace it. And only then will she find the real stone. And so this is by far the, the most carefully executed action set piece in the film. It's, all done basically through GoPro footage on her head, right? As she's sprinting through these caves, it's pretty heavily edited as well. Like they're cutting a lot, um, you know, to increase the sort of frenetic pace, but she has to run all the way back. We get another glimpse of Benji's dead body laying on the floor. She has to crawl all the way back up the hole, which I like that. She's got a moment where she pauses and she says like, Oh, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. But, this this is a section that seems to defy the very just laws of of human energy and endurance cuz man I, I maybe if if i if i was truly truly afraid for my life i would have this kind of energy Jiminy Christmas yeah uh it's it's kind of nuts but as she goes back through the one of the watery tunnels um she looks down and it's all blood now it's just blood oh. it's all blood and she gets pulled into the blood and I'm guessing her helmet cam flies off. I think that's the only way they they could have gotten the shot is uh you know cuz you see her kind of fighting her way out of the blood and the the you know the camera's looking at her face as she's doing it and then she picks it up. So I, I'm guessing it's just it kind of flung off and she picks it up as she goes and it, it it's fine. It's it's the one point in the film where I'm like, ah, that's, you know, you're, you broke with your format to show me something that you wanted to show me."
1: And I kind um, of the same one she finds in the very next section she finds the you know suggested it's her father hanging with the yeah towel over his face or something and she pulls it off and it's her and like it's this real MTV scream in the camera moment i just that was really yeah. cheesy for me that was maybe the cheesiest moment so far for me
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's the most it's the most obvious horror trope Thing to do, um, to get a cheap jump scare out of something that they've now shown us. That's the third time they'd shown us the hanging person in the the trench coat, and it's pretty clearly indicated at this point that it's her dad. So you kind of, I know why they did it because you know what it's supposed to be, and then they're shocking you. But at the same time, it's it's a very it's a very cliched thing to do. I, I almost rather it would have been a, a demon or, or something else. Um, but she she makes it through there. There is a, a little quick shot after that of all of these mouths in the floor. Like she's barefoot now. So I guess when she went down into the river of blood, um, when she went down to the river of blood, she lost her shoes. Happens to me Which,
1: every time I get stuck in a river of blood.
0: I mean, she just straight up gets uh, she gets uh, John McLeaned, you know. So now she's barefoot. Um, but then she. so the revelation that she makes when she puts the stone back is that the stone isn't really the stone that she is the stone. Right. Not unlike Maxwell Lord in Wonder Woman 84, the stone was her all along. Um, But it's, it's more about the, it seems to be saying something about being honed, right, the, that going through these experiences and coming out the other side is sort of the... The true sort
1: philosopher's of, stone.
0: Right, like, <laughs> you, you know, that the, the power was inside you all along kind of uh. thing. And, well, she looks in the mirror in, in the wall, and, and it's almost like she realizes that she's absorbed the stone's power into herself through these experiences or something along those lines. And so she goes back. I, I do have to say that I find it com- as she's running, when she confronts like the stone demon things, I, I don't know what it is about it, but she just kind of bats them out of the way. It <laughs> feels very video gamey. It feels like, Doom, <laughs> you know, where she's just like, and they just get like, she just pushes them out of the way and, and they, they explode or something. It, it was the, one of the more video gamey things uh, of the, the, the sequence. Um, but, I mean, it's it's still interesting. You know, I, I think it was more they didn't, because the effects on those stone demons are pretty bad. Like, they're not great. You know, they're, they feel the most like a papier-mâché monster kind of thing in the film, which the film generally does not. I mean, it looks really good. But those are the things that feel a little bit eh. And so I think it was more just a, we need to get these off screen as quickly as possible. Like we're not going to show these for very long. So, you know, we're just going to have her kind of run by them and knock them to the side. Cause you know, what else? But the hooded figures are good. Uh, I like the, the hooded figures in black. I think that's good. They've kind of got almost like a doll, like a porcelain face mask.
1: There's an artist who <clears> makes <throat> statues that look exactly like that. I can't remember that artist's name right now, but, um, I, I'm, Pretty certain that's where the design for those came from. Um, it, so their yeah. artwork was like making the rounds on the internet not too long before the movie was out.
0: I could certainly see that. I I like that the the darkness of the catacombs is that it's it's most potent here. Like as they are running and sprinting into this final section of the caves, there's no light. You know the 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 catacombs have been surprisingly well lit up until this point, but they all that falls apart here um, as they're being chased by these shadowy figures um, that we've only seen in glimpses, but effective glimpses, right? I, I like the camera movements here, especially towards the end as they're running; like it feels very chaotic. It feels like you know what you might actually see from that kind of footage. But they find another deep hole, um, which is you know. Awesome. But this one, they don't have any other caving equipment. They don't have any other gear. They've lost everything at this point. So they pretty much decide to just jump uh, and hope that when they hit the bottom, they're not dead. And they're not, which is great. Um, They realize that they've survived. Um, And there's a cylindrical structure in the middle. And this, for me, I absolutely love this. I, I absolutely I this love this because, fun. again, this film plays with the concept of mirrors, right? Like she looks into the mirror to to find the truth of the stone and she does end up saving George's life. I guess that's really a plot point we kind of glossed over. Yeah. um But she comes back with this realization that she is the stone or she has the power of the stone inside of her at the very least. And uh, she she kisses George and and is able to heal his egregious neck wound and <laughs> help him survive.
1: His neck wound.
0: That's right. Um, she gave him the hickey of healing and uh, everything was fine. But this, this cylindrical structure at the bottom they keep trying to lift up, they realize that they actually need to push on it. And that they are on the underside of the street, right? They are in the mirror version of the world and they're, it's a manhole, it is their escape and they need to actually push it up to move it out of the way. And man, I, I just love this sequence. It, this movie, you know, we, we've talked before about, you know, have you seen, are you seeing something you've never seen before? The movie is almost worth watching for this next sequence. Because they they slide the manhole over, what they don't realize is a manhole, they slide it over, they realize there's fresh air on the other side, but they are quite literally upside down. Yeah. And so the camera, they lift it up, they put it on the street outside, they throw up all their stuff, and it basically extricate themselves from the hole as if they are, are climbing down from, some, or climbing up from somewhere when they should be climbing, you know, down it's
1: wonderfully disorienting. Like it's, it's, it's a pleasurable disorientation.
0: Right. And it's, it's such a good way to cap off this insane experience because the world has literally been completely shifted the wrong direction for them. And then the camera flips. Like, I don't know why Zed takes the time to flip the camera, the other direction before he walks away. But thank you. I'm glad he did. Yeah going to make the um, movie better. It's, it's cool. It's a really, really cool shot.
1: I like um, the group hug at the end. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice moment. They all hug each other, which I would like to see more of that in horror movies. I feel like everyone just sort of stares into the, the middle distance and the movie ends. I like the triumphant hug.
0: <laughs> yeah, they hug and then they just they part ways. It's yeah. like, all right, we survived we don't have, anything I don't left. ever
1: want to see any of you people ever again.
0: <laughs> exactly. We have nothing else to say to each other. There is no reason for us to ever speak to each other again. Um, and the movie probably should have just ended right there, but of course they can't, you know, we need some kind of cap off. And so we go back to that documentary footage of Scarlett from the beginning and get another little, you know, cut scene where she talks about, you know, finding truth and, and, um, she never really wanted the, the treasure. She never wanted to have the Philosopher's Stone itself, just an understanding, right? Because she's a student. She'll be a student forever. Quit lying. That's right. Nobody. No, nah, not
1: and, and then this movie gets a credit sequence that is so cool that I, I feel like this should have been a much bigger deal. I love this credit sequence.
0: Yeah. The, this is when, uh, so this is 2012, right? And this, this is a Legendary Pictures joint. And and I don't know who Legendary Pictures was contracting for all of their end credit sequences in this time period, but they all were just pretty awesome, and this one is too. It's it's a bunch of shots from various moments in the film. There's a lot of Paris, and it has that same disorienting quality where you know what is up, what is down, you know what is left, what is right. Um, it's it's really good. It's it's a it's a bit tonally off from the rest of the film and yeah. it feels way more feels way more overproduced than the rest of the movie. Like that's really why it feels a bit out of place because it feels like it should be attached to like a 140 million dollar movie. Yeah. Not a 4 million dollar movie. Um but it's awesome. Like it almost feels uh, I mean cuz like True Detective and stuff was really popular at this time and it feels a bit of that ilk. Um I I don't know. It it definitely is awesome, but it it certainly seems. Um, I don't know. It 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 doesn't really hang with the rest of the movie, but it as its own little tone piece. It's it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um. So I. I I guess as we we sort of wrap up and and sort of think about the overall qualities of this film. I think it does what good horror movies should do in that we do have legitimate characters in this. We don't get a ton of characterization time, obviously. But each character has a kind of anchor point. Their relationships are good. The dialogue that they have, much like Blair Witch, feels pretty naturalistic, sparse, but motivated by what's going on, right? A lot of of Blair Witch could have been these characters sitting in the woods trying to talk about their problems or you know things that were going on in their lives, but because they're so focused on survival and focused on what's happening, most of their conversations revolve around like what they're experiencing, and and that helps again keep it feeling like natural. It's okay because if you were trapped in something like this, you're not going to be sitting around talking about like you know how you, you miss your dog back home or something. You're going to talk about the things that are happening to you, and this feels very much like that. So it's got decent character work for a film of this type. It's, it's one of the better examples of the found footage genre because it really sticks to it and commits to it. There's only a couple of moments that break from just these are the cameras that we had. It, it feels a little over-edited at times, which is one thing that I think... It's probably the hardest thing for, for filmmakers to do with found footage is to just let it play. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things, again, we're going to talk about Blair Witch establishing the genre and even paranormal activity, at least the first one, is a willingness to just let the scene play. Yeah. Right. To not edit everything out. The, the Doddles are, are good in that all of their edits usually come on like a blackout as a character is turning and looking at, um, you know, nothing or their, their camera goes dark for a moment. That's when the cuts usually happen. So they're hiding them often but it's still a very over edited film, especially towards the end as things get really frenetic. Whereas Blair, Witch understood that you actually want to get longer and you want to stick in the moment longer. You want to give the brain less time to flit from scene to scene, to scene, to moment, to moment, to moment. You want to stick with it. Right. Cause think about that final run through the house that Heather goes on mm-hmm. in Blair, Witch, and how it's just, it's not that long. I mean, we're, Talking about maybe 20, 25 seconds, but it's basically uninterrupted. The cuts are nearly invisible, and it all leads up to that final. And what they you know, do with moment. the audio
1: is great. Yes. And they have her audio coming from different sources. It's
0: mm-hmm.
1: just can't get better than that. <laughs> it's
0: good. Like I said, I mean, there's a reason why these dudes, you know, built this genre anew, right? They weren't the originators, but they, crafted it into something else entirely, and it was a full and complete understanding not only of how to build a mythology in a realistic way, but also how to build a film that feels assembled from these component parts. And As Above, So Below does a lot of those same things. It's, it's more straightforward with its tricks, it's more straightforward with its horror, it could have probably pushed further into the found footage genre, the found footage technique to find a, a stronger voice rather than sort of falling back on on more traditional horror tropes. But the fortunate thing is is the tropes it falls back on are really effective. And this movie plays them effectively. And that setting sells it all, just wraps it up in a beautiful little package with a great bow on it and says, here you go. You're mm-hmm. Are you, are you going to visit the catacombs when you go to Paris? Nope. Nope. <laughs> nope. Not anymore. Not after watching this movie. No, thank you.
1: I still might. I think I have a death wish.
0: Oh, sure. I'll yeah, go. I'd,
1: I want to die.
0: <laughs> I'd be okay with it. I'd go down there on, on just a regular <laughs> tour with a flashlight and a battery pack and an extra canteen and all of the survival gear necessary to survive for days if I got lost. <clears throat> no, it's... it's. I don't know. I... I, I, I I really enjoy this film. I, I think it's really good. It's not perfect. It, it certainly has its flaws. I, I think the, the first 20 minutes is way too exposition heavy and, and spends way too much time building up the Nicholas Flamel subplot that unfortunately, even though it is key to the ending, I mean, she, you know, she has to figure it out for them to escape. They it could just have done so a slightly
1: simpler setup. They could have, done something that was more straightforward. Like, you know, they don't obviously don't want to do the documentarian route, but you know, she could have just been investigating this. Maybe it was a research project. You know, it didn't have to be this lifelong passion necessarily. And where we're delving into, you know, all these aspects of alchemy, I think it would have been a little more approachable if they had simplified it.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll go ahead and slide into uh, our our one thing. You know, how could as above, so below, have reached that critical mass? Right, it did fine financially, it did fine in building a fan base, all good. But how could it have avoided these these you know accusations of it being cliche, these accusations of it being trite and and tropey? And I think simplifying the conceit for why they get down there is yeah. the number one thing. Right, I mean, alchemy is a cool thing. If you're trying to hang your hat and have a twist on something in the horror genre, alchemy is certainly a place that you can explore. In this film, it feels unnecessary. I you think could it have gotten them in there other veins, and and taking that plot element out, or having them discover it while they're there, yeah, as opposed to going down there with the intent of finding it, I, I think would have been more interesting.
1: Well, I mean, you look at at movies like you know, the Indiana Jones movies, and, and everything is just an excuse to put him in this situation where he can find this thing and discover this mystery. And it's always, I mean, the second movie put it best, Fortune and Glory, that's the only thing that gets him to where he needs to go to finding the, you know, the Shankara stones or the, the you know, Holy Grail or something, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and I, I think that Maybe this would have been better off with something as simple as we want to find the Philosopher's Stone because we're greedy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not because it's a lifelong quest. I guess I just didn't really buy that part. Um, You know, it makes it easier because she knows so much about it that she can give us all of that exposition. But at what cost? (laughs)
0: Yeah, I feel like it just it gets so overshadowed by the horror horror elements at the end, that that whole quest and there's really and really there's just no payoff for it, right? Like, okay, so is she, is she the Philosopher's Stone
1: now? Was that like a temporary thing? Yeah, does she that just wear off while she was <laughs> down
0: there? But now that the mirror world has been reversed, and then that the whole I, I mean for me anyway the whole idea of the mirror world and and the the descent into the seven levels of hell, which is obviously what they're playing at. Um, you know, you don't reference Dante's Inferno unless you're going to go hard into that, and they they definitely do. Um, but I, I really feel like there was, there were lots of other potential mythologies that they could have explored, and, and hanging it to something that has become so sort of culturally... Eh, as the Philosopher's Stone, it just, it feels really unnecessary. Um, and, and again, not bad. It's, it's certainly a way to go. Um, it, it ties together their you know desire to be in Paris and go to the catacombs and all that stuff. Like all of that happens and it's fine, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really amount to much in the film other than a motivation. And it seems like there could have been lots of different motivations to get them down into those caves and and still been fine. So yeah, I'm definitely with you. I, I think stripping that out or, or altering that subplot is really the the easiest way to find this film having a bit more purchase. Um, but it feels like a movie built in the Blair Witch mold. They're trying to build a mythology, right? And
2: yeah.
0: you know, again, I think if you're going to do that well you kind of need to take that Blair Witch approach, right? You need to have conversations with more people than just Scarlet, right? Like we're going to go talk to this curator at the Paris museum and we're going to go talk to this person and this person, they're going to tell us all about the alchemy. And that's where you introduce the the dark side of alchemy, right? How alchemy had these costs, right? There was this opportunity cost to, to, you know, change things and you had to sacrifice something of yourself and, oh, what were the costs of that? You know, like there's, there's certainly a way that you could have explored some of these themes and set them up before we got down there and then just get lambasted with all of this craziness uh, without really knowing what's going on for a while. But, um, all right, well, I guess we really need to establish whether or not we recommend this film and where it falls on our failure piece. So what do you think about As Above, So Below?
1: I think that this is possibly one of the best found footage movies that you can spend your time watching. Um, I mean, obviously I'm a big fan of The Blair Witch Project. I think we made that very clear. Yeah, we can't <laughs> stop what I'm talking about. <laughs> and that's always going to happen, unfortunately, with found footage because you know when you make something that had that much of a cultural impact you know it's hard not to talk about it however this movie's doing really neat things it does things that i've never seen in a found footage movie before just and and nothing really you know specific that i can i can just list off but it's one of those it's one of those films that it's it's very successful in what it sets out to do and I don't feel like it's trying to do a lot. I don't feel like it's a a super ambitious project, but it was fun. Um, And that's one thing that I I think that found footage movies can bring to horror that I haven't seen in a long time, that maybe I hadn't seen since the little slasher revival we had in the 90s, um, where it's just fun. You can tell that the filmmakers are having a good time making these movies and exploring the premise. Um, and I feel like that movie this movie does that. Um, oh, yeah, as for a score, this I'm gonna go high because I mean, if I'm putting this in terms of a found footage movie, this is like an eighty five because it's it's fun. And if you're looking at it as part of this, you know, larger genre of films that are, they do kind of get shit on by critics pretty regularly because they engage in some of those tropes, those cliches, those things that we, you know, we look upon so negatively, but are kind of important to horror movies. It's the same with science fiction. We've talked about that. They always get dismissed as derivative and you know, terrible because they're relying on these tropes. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm at. I think this is a really, really fun movie. And I wish that I wish the critics had been a little bit nicer to it.
0: Same. Uh, I think it was was lambasted unfairly, and even its audience score on Rotten Tomatoes isn't great. It's like 40%, um, which speaks to there being some unsatisfying elements in this film for, for some people. Um, but I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, I, I love found footage films. I, I think they're, it's such a genre rife for interesting experimentation and uh, sort of finding its way in, in, you know, through cool stories. Uh, It doesn't always work, obviously. Um, You know, I I really like some of the VHS movies there were three of those, I guess, and there are anthologies. Some are good, some are not. Uh, There's a Nacho Vigalando one on the second one, I think, maybe even the third, because VHS three was pretty bad. It wasn't very good. Although there is a sequence with uh, Justin Moorhead and Aaron Benson. They did a a shot. uh, It was like a Supposed to be like a uh, skater kid video that goes bad and turns into like them fighting demons. It's hilarious, <laughs> um, but it's it's really good. Um, and I love Morehead and Benson. Uh, which if you haven't watched it yet, I'll just throw this out there. Synchronic is their new one. It's got Anthony Mackie and uh, Jamie Dornan in it. Hmm. Really solid. Uh, definitely worth, worth. I'm glad finding. to see not, Jamie Dornan's
1: not... working and not What's making. That? I'm glad to see Jamie Dornan's working and not just doing.
0: Fifty Shades sequel.
1: Glad to see he was embarrassed by that.
0: But um, you know, so I, I like those a lot. But this this certainly ranks pretty highly for me. I, I think the setting does a lot to set it apart because um, it's just such an unconventional place to make a film of any kind, and and it it really really sells this one. And uh, some good acting, small cast decent story enough to sort of motivate it along right found footage films don't have to have complicated fascinating stories for them to work and and this one works you know despite the flaws in its story it's just got really cool moments tons of tension tons of really really cool execution in terms of its shots um very cool like i I, i'm definitely with you so my score for this one it's a hard recommend absolutely especially given that it's so easy to to watch on netflix right now um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm right in the same boat as you. This was an 88 for me. Um, I've watched this probably half a dozen times, and I'll probably watch it again just because I find it enjoyable. Like, it's it's just enough to kind of pull me along. It's a good movie to just have on in the background or to just sit down and sort of plow through if you don't have anything else going on. But So, yeah, um, hard recommend for me. Easy, easy recommend, especially if you have any love for the found footage genre at all. And if you don't, this may be a pretty solid entry point, right? Uh, if you've never seen a lot of found footage or if you've avoided it because, you know, it seemed silly or it seemed like it's, uh, you know, couldn't quite get the job done. I mean, if you, if you can, then watch Blair Witch. Uh, if you can't watch Blair Witch or if you've seen it and, and just want something else in the genre to, to sort of be familiar with, then I, I think this is a pretty solid one.
1: Yeah, this shows some of the range of found footage. You know, there's more range to these this film type than people give credit.
0: Yeah, enough so that that I feel comfortable saying that it is a genre now because you can really push it in some interesting directions. Um, there are, you know, if you're not into horror, then you could do like Troll Hunter, uh, which <laughs> is uh, Andre Overdahl's 2010 film that was found footage about a, a young girl who goes out and fights trolls in the forest, which is also found footage and very fun um it's it, it it's more just like low almost just like low fi shaky cam than it is true found footage i mean it is but um i don't know here and there uh, but it's it's really good he of course went on to do scary tour uh Gary, scary stories to tell in the dark uh <laughs> same director uh, which has some some found footage stuff in it as well and it's pretty fun i mean it's not very good but it's it's fun
1: Well, how could it be? We had that book to live up to.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, you're never going to match the imagination of a scared out of their mind. You're never going to (laughs) scare
2: me. Not like
1: that book did.
0: Yeah, it's just not going to happen. Everybody Um,
1: had their moment with that at the Scholastic Book Fair.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, But I I think this is an easier one to get into than, like, Quarantine uh, or Wreck. Definitely. Wreck is hard Watch. Yeah. Holy crap, that movie's terrifying. Um, at least it was for me. I don't know what it was about Wreck, but when I watched it the first time, I, I can watch it now and I'm fine, but the first time I watched it, I was like, this is like way too intense. Way so too
1: much intense. screaming. It was just, the screaming was it. just yeah.
0: nonstop. It's just nonstop people screaming, peeking the camera, just speakers just yeah. blurting it at high registers. It's just... Really difficult to watch. I mean,
1: it's it's the, the audio equivalent of of Bayhem in a horror movie. It's just too much.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just like overwhelming. Uh, you know, there's only so much screaming you can take before you you kind of lose it. But uh, in any case, uh, just give this one a try. Uh, it's it's pretty solid. Um, definitely one of the better examples of the found footage genre. And a, a worthy successor to the heights of Blair Witch and uh, you know, Paranormal Activity. Um, but if you want really good found footage that's very palatable, find The River, <laughs> the um, ABC one-season canceled television show, because I want more people to be angry that that show is canceled after one season.
1: I feel I will soon be angry about this as well.
0: I, I, think, I think it's very possible. Bruce Greenwood, man. Bruce
1: I'll watch him do anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll watch the man, I, I don't know, paint something and then watch that paint dry. I will watch that. Yeah. That's fine. Uh, but in any case, uh, so let's go ahead and wrap it up. Where can you be found on uh, social medias?
1: I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter.
0: And I can be found at T Baskin on Twitter. Or you can get us at F Peace Theater. Or you can email us if you have specific questions at failurepiece at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you've enjoyed the show, feel free to recommend it to friends. Give us a tweet. um, Let people know that you've enjoyed it so that we can uh, infect their ears like we've infected yours. Just get all up in them ear holes Mm -hmm. with our our voices and our film opinions, which, of course, matter as much as you think they might. Let uh, me put
1: my opinions in your ear holes. (laughs)
0: that's right there's plenty of ear holes out there for opinions to go into let's get in them Uh, but in any case we will be back next week with another discussion of a cinematic misfire a train wreck in the making as uh, we dissect and attempt to understand whether or not it can be a failure piece worth your time all right so have a great week and we will see you next time
1: bye bye